Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So I added something new to WealthFormula.com. It's something called the Weekly Wealth Widget. This is something that you need to sign up for if you're interested in increasing your financial IQ. So the idea here is simply this. It's sort of taking the place of the newsletter, although we'll have the same kind of weekly emails that we have on the newsletter. But in addition to that, you'll get another letter, and that is designed to give you bite-sized pieces of financial education in the form of language, understanding the language the concepts of the financial world and investing world that a lot of times, if you're somebody who graduated from medical school or engineering school or law school or whatever, that it really wasn't part of your curriculum. And all of a sudden you get in situations and you hear people talking about this and that, and you don't know what they're talking about and you feel dumb. Well, that's what this is designed for is to give you bite-sized information in a weekly format, small amounts. You can just say, oh, now I know what that means. I get it. So that is Weekly Wealth Widget. Go and sign up for that at wealthformula.com. The other thing, of course, is we've got the Investor Club. The Investor Club is going strong. We've had multiple deals. We're also going to have some educational seminars regarding taxes and asset protection, et cetera, et cetera, later on this spring. Let's get to this show. When I finished my training in surgery, and that was 2008, 2009, and figured out at that point that, you know, I was going to have money and I had to figure out how to invest it. The hardest thing for me was to figure out who to trust. The first apartment building I bought was a 14 unit building in the southern suburbs of Chicago. Now, I would characterize that building as a C minus, maybe a D plus area. Now, my broker who sold me the place was also the guy who sold me my house. Now, just to give a sense, my house is in the northern suburbs in the state district of Chicago's North Shore. So what I didn't understand back in the day was there is such thing as specialization in the world of brokerage too. So anyway, good guy, maybe not the best choice uh, for buying an apartment building. 
And anyway, I trust the guy, but he didn't know what he was doing. And so I ended up buying this building because the numbers look fantastic, right? I mean, it, listen, I got the spreadsheet out and I got two years of tax returns from the seller. It looked like a home run. And many of you know how this story ends, though, because I've told it a number of times. To make a long story short, I got bamboozled by a crafty and dishonest seller who owned many buildings in the area and, frankly, was stuffing the rent roll. So lesson learned, of course. There's lots of lessons there. We won't get into it too much, but it has not happened to me since then. The first time I invested in a fund, I got fooled. Okay, And this was from a fast-talking salesman who called himself a hedge fund manager. And he told me he could teach me how to create my own fund while I invested in his. In fact, he'd make me a quote-unquote partner. This guy was everywhere on the internet, and he seemed to be on lots of podcasts, so I trusted him. And when I started listening on these weekly calls after I became a quote-unquote partner, it became very clear to me in the short period of time that this guy cared nothing about investors and that his whole business model revolved around the idea of collecting fees. That's the whole deal from investors and even from these little you know partners that he had who he was going to teach how to you know, become syndicators, etc. So in fact, he sort of double dipped in that regard. I quit that group shortly thereafter because I didn't like it. When I realized for myself early on was, you know what? I make plenty of money. The last thing I want to do is learn how to cheat people out of theirs, right? But that's what he was all about. So that was four years ago. And I actually put in a little bit of money in that fund too, because that was part of the deal. And guess what? I never saw a penny in returns. In fact, it's become sort of the ongoing joke with my CPA. You know, we refer to it as that fund that I'm invested in that has no returns. Well, listen, although the guy never sends me any money, he is religious about sending my K-1 to me every year to file taxes. And that way I'm reminded every year that he's paid me no returns. So anyway, by the way, I am more than happy to reveal the identity of that shyster to anybody who wants to know. I'm just not going to put it you know, in podcast format or in writing, because who knows? But anyway, I I, I don't want to do that. But I, I'll tell anybody, you know, because I, I really don't like this guy. So anyway, the reason I bring these experience up is that as much as education has to do with successful investing, you also have to eventually figure out who you know, like, and trust. And if that seems daunting, well, it is, especially for someone like me who was coming out of surgical residency. Listen, I had no connections in the financial world, and I was a lame duck for sharks that enjoyed preying on young, trusting doctors with six-figure salaries. That's what I was. So over the years, however, I learned a concept that has served me well and has, frankly, kept me from losing money since that first apartment building and since I've you know, invested with that dishonest fund manager. The concept is actually pretty simple. And you hear it all the time, and it sounds kind of cheesy, but it is true. Net worth equals network. Net worth equals network. It is very true. You see, eventually, I met people who are like-minded, and I started to invest with people with whom they invested. And eventually, this turned into a community of investors and opportunities, sometimes going back and forth. You know, one guy would have a deal and others would invest. And then another guy would have a deal and the other guys would invest. The close-knit nature of this group also served 
to be a very good way to keep checks and balances on everyone. Listen, they're all good people, but at the end of the day, you know, everybody needs to worry more and have a little bit more sphincter tone, as they say, when they're being graded. Don't get me wrong. Just because you know somebody and trust somebody doesn't mean that you're going to make money in that investment. That's just not realistic to make that assumption. There's no such thing as a guarantee. What it does mean, hopefully, is that you won't purposely get screwed by someone from day one. And as you will find in this business, that is 90% of the battle in investing. Everyone can make a pro forma look good, and anyone can make an executive summary look like a gold mine. However, when I look at an opportunity these days, my main question, who's the sponsor? And do I know, like, and trust him or her? This concept relates to really any kind of investing, really. I mean, some of you new to real asset investing on our phone calls have expressed sort of some concerns, you know, about the idea about moving away from traditional equity market. It's because you don't know who to trust. I get it. However, did you ever ask yourself why you trust stocks, bonds, and mutual funds so much? Why do you trust your financial planner so much? The answer is because that's what you were taught. It's like religion to you. And when you stray away from that religion, it feels like you're doing something wrong. Even your friends and family criticize you for thinking outside of the orthodoxy. Taking your finances into your own hands requires guts. And what makes it easier to make a move like this is a community. Going back to the parallel of religion, once you find a group of people with whom you share a common set of beliefs and values, it's comforting. Why? Well, it's because the people that you are around believe in what you do. You know, they have the same values, and that reinforces your own belief system. At the end of the day, we are social animals. We need community, and we need things in which to believe. And my mission with Wealth Formula Podcast has been and will continue to be to help create that community for you if you're ready for it. I am an evangelist for the cause of the hard asset investing community. So some of you have become ardent believers already, and others are still in the process of changing their mindset and their paradigm. And that's okay, too. When you're ready to move forward, I'm happy to invite you to my world of network-based real asset investing. So anyway, a great example of network-based investing is my guest today. So before today's interview, I never spoke directly to Ken McElroy, yet I know Many people who know him and who have invested with him, and that's why I'm on his investor list. It also helps that he is a rich dad advisor to Robert Kiyosaki and that he wrote the books from which I first learned the language of real estate. Anyway, I'm excited about this show, so I hope you enjoy it. And when we come back, Ken McElroy. Welcome back to the show, everybody. After finishing my surgical residency, as many of you know, that was 2008, I stumbled onto The Cashflow Quadrant, which is one of Robert Kiyosaki's book. And that book really changed my mindset. And it also got me very interested in real estate investing. 
And even though my dad had been a landlord for many years, I didn't really understand how to approach real estate as an investor. So the next book I picked up happened to be uh, Ken McElroy's ABCs of Real Estate Investing. Now, many of you know that Ken is one of the Rich Dad Advisors, and he is sort of the guru when it comes to multifamily real estate. And then I picked up another one of his books, The Advanced Guide to Real Estate Investing. And using just these two books, I bought my first several apartment buildings, and they still serve as the basis of everything, you know, for the most part that I picked up as the fundamentals of real estate investing. And therefore, it gives me great pleasure to introduce him to my audience today on Wealth Formula Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ken McElroy. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Oh, anytime. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, Ken, I wanted to kind of get a little bit of a background here because obviously most people who know you or know of you think of you as, you know, the multifamily real estate guy who's the, you know, the rich dad advisor on the topic. So let's go way back. Now, what got you into real estate in the first place? Yeah, so right out of university, I ended up managing an apartment building for a high net worth guy for a group of syndicators. And as I was finishing up school, you know, I ended up basically running a 60-unit apartment building, collecting rent, painting units, and doing all that stuff. And that actually began my career. And I ended up, while I was there, getting my real estate license and working for that particular company, which is a huge company now. And so that was my first start, at least, in the multifamily business. And I started on the property management side, which I really felt like, gave me a unique advantage to be able to buy that later because, you know, having run so many properties, that company got almost 200,000 units now. And I, I, at the time, I was managing properties all over the Seattle area, uh, down in the Portland, Oregon area, and basically all the way up and down Interstate 5 and uh, managed uh, right around 20,000 units. So I stayed with that company. It was my only job, actually for eight years and really understanding and learning property management, ground up construction development and those things. So really lucky to get that first job and really all at the time I was just trying to get some free rent, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, right, right. It's funny how things start that way, right? So at what point did you kind of, you know, take it on your own and ultimately, I guess, become, you know, a syndicator and start dealing with your own buildings in the larger multifamily complexes? Yes. I worked for that third firm for nine years right out of school. Then I started actually a similar firm. So really, I started another business in property management. So that was my first real adventure. And the first company was a property management firm. And came up with a very creative name, McElroy Management. You know. <laughs> and I had that for about three years. And then I decided to start buying them. You know, and I really, truly just started with a one-bedroom, one-bath condo. So I was buying because I was using all my own money and started off with one and then I bought another one and I bought another one and basically used my own savings. And eventually I ran out of money. And so I said, well, now I have to figure out how to syndicate. And luckily I had been around you know, the business long enough to meet lots and lots and lots of people. And I started putting together you know, money to do that. I started going out and raising capital. Yeah, on a one-on-one basis with high net worth people, including people from my family, even though they ended up not investing, just going out in front of people. And that's actually 
I met my partner, Raw, who he had a similar sized company in Tucson, and I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. And we ended up merging our companies, and then we decided to take it another level. So today we have 10,000 units and 350 employees. That's fantastic. Now, obviously, it's an interesting thing how these kind of partnerships come together. And, you know, when we think about syndicators and we think about real estate, a lot of times, you know, people who are out there investing or just learning about this stuff for the first time, they think it's like, okay, one guy's going out there, is finding these deals, and then he's putting them together. But really, it's a team thing. And what I find unique about your situation is that you come at it from a very different angle than from Ross. And I mean, would you say that's probably a big part of your success? Yeah, for sure. So I really credit a lot of our success in our company um, to being in the operations side of it. A lot of people think of real estate and holding it, you know, selling it. And I actually, I look at it very differently where I, when a broker or a seller comes to us and trying to sell us something, I'm looking at it from really a performance standpoint, an operational standpoint, and that's really my strength. Right. It's putting the teams together and being able to pull off the diligence, the construction, and you know the running of the property from the leasing side and the leasing of management. And so that's really all I did after school. And so when presenting with an opportunity, whatever that might be, one I'm I'm not at all afraid of. 100% vacant property in a good location. Right, all. right. You know, we bought all kinds of distressed stuff. When you when you say the word distress, a lot of times people think it's, you know, like slumlords. This is not, you know, the stuff we bought and have bought in, you know, really A locations, so main and main and really, really poorly run or underperforming or bank owned or whatever. And then we might put three, four, five, six, seven million dollars into a property. And reposition the whole thing. Yeah. So you know, most of our properties today are all what would be considered Class B or Class A. In fact, we're, we're building two. So we have a hundred million under construction right now, with about a, not quite a thousand units under construction. And, you know, long-term hold guys like to hold properties. We like to run them really well. We don't like to sell because tax. Right. So all the stuff that I've written about, we adopt here. And, it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it. Now, tell me a little bit because you know a lot of people obviously associate you as one of the Robert Kiyosaki's rich dad advisors. Tell me how that relationship came up to be and how that's developed over the years. Yeah, of course. So you know it's interesting. I'm in a group called I was in a group called EO, and now I'm in a group called YPO. And one of my friends in one of those groups said. And they knew I was out raising money. He said, hey, meet this guy. He just wrote this book, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Honestly, I had never read it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he set a meeting up with Robert and Kim, and I went to the bookstore and bought it and read it. You know, I wanted to be prepared while I sat down in front of him to figure out what, how he was thinking. And, and it was a good book, as you know. And I was already doing a lot of the things in the book. And we, we ended up connecting and becoming good friends and he asked me to come speak at some of his things. You know, never in my life did I ever believe I would write books. I donate all the money to charity and we have a foundation for our company. So every single book, every single CD, all that stuff, all that money goes to charity. Wow. That's great. The, the books themselves are great vehicles to, to help people teach. And so yeah, I speak with Robert 
uh, really when I can. I'm not very consistent with it, to be quite honest, because I'm on the road a lot, you know, working on my business. But like I've spoken with Robert, you know, maybe four or five times is all. And ironically, I'm actually going to be going next week speaking with it. And then I think I have another one in November. All right, so you're going to be on the summit, Ken? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll be there too. So we will definitely get a chance to meet in person there. That'll be cool. Yeah, I just committed that about a month ago. I wasn't able to go, but now I'm going to go. So I like to do it. I like to help people. I like to teach them and just sit down with them and, and answer any questions they might have. I think it's a great way to help yeah. people. Yeah. So, I mean, based on, you know, your books and, you know, the things that I've done and I've you know, sort of started to do a little bit of syndication myself. And I want to shift a little bit about and talk a little bit about the current multifamily market. You know, right now, when I'm looking at the market, I'm struck by the level of cap rate compression. And really now, even in secondary markets, and you're seeing like, you know, some markets like Dallas Fort Worth, you're seeing C minus class properties sold at sub six cap rates. And you know, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And, you know, is this just some kind of irrational exuberance of some kind? Yeah, I've seen this before. It's not unusual at all to have cap rates compressed when there's a lot of money in the market. But really, honestly, the multifamily's hot, as you know, and everybody's investing in, and there's a lot of money being thrown at it. So, whatever that happens, People stretch on the prices that they pay. And if you think about it, it's actually a pretty stable place to be because, you know, if you look at the alternatives like the stock market and some other asset classes, it's actually a pretty good place to be depending on how you buy. We're not buying right now. We're trying, but we haven't bought. We've bought only one property in the last 12 months because we're just not going to overpay. And we're kind of we're sticking to our same model, trying to prove high investor returns. Right. You can't do that unless you're paying these numbers. And of course, interest rates have gone up too. So that squeezes cash flow a little bit. And, and we just don't see the rent growth. I mean, any syndicator anywhere could say that rent is going to go up three, four, five percent a year over the next five years. Yeah. And, and make a deal work on paper. I just don't think that'll happen. So we really bought a property. In 2009, 10, 11, 40,000 the door, 50,000 the door. Those same property. We don't buy any seeds. So we were buying, you know, bees at 40, 50,000 the door in Plano, Texas. Yeah. Those, you know, we obviously experienced a lot of rent growth too. But if you look at rent, you know, we're starting to hit a ceiling on what affordability is. We're having affordability issues because a lot of our renters can't afford some of the rents. And yep. they're, moving, they're moving further out and doubling up and starting to hit some ceilings, in my opinion, because you know, it's definitely not keeping up with cost of living. So when you one thing that I was sort of interested when you said, because I wanted to ask you, because, you know, I've been in real estate really, you know, when I finished my training, it was 2008, 2009. And, you know, I didn't have any money when I first ended up and I was buying smaller apartment buildings and they were cheap. But when was the last time? You saw this kind of compression, and then how did it play itself out to a point where you know things got reasonable again? Yeah, well, it's happened many times. I saw it in you know, 2005, 2006. Uh-huh. So this always happens at the tail end of every cycle. 
right? right. That's all that's happening. Cap rates go down and prices go up, and prices go up because people are throwing all kinds of money at uh, multifamily. And yeah. That's the only reason. You know, it's so different if you compare it to a single family market. It's the same thing happened. You know, I remember prices were going up monthly because there's a lot of a lot of market. So people were chasing that and expecting it never to stop. And it will stop at some point. You know, the next piece typically what happens at this point in a multifamily cycle is you start to see more and more condos and more and more condo conversions. Yeah. That's usually the tail end of a multifamily cycle. You know, I started in the business in the late eighties and so I saw this happen in the nineties and I saw it happen in two thousand. And you know, it's just happening again, it's just history repeating itself. And Ken, is that just a function of a hot market in general, just there being more capital, you know, that maybe is coming out of the stock market? Part of what I'm seeing is really interesting is even in the C-class area, we've got institutional money coming out from China buying things that are C-class. I mean, normally those guys seem to buy things that are in A and, you know, A minus areas, but they're buying everything. Yeah. That's normal. I mean, if you go back and look back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was Japan. Yeah, right, right. You know, and then early in the 2000s, it was Canada. Yeah, interesting. So you just have to go back and look. So so right now, you look what's happening in China, I think the flight out of there because of the currency, you know, and that's a whole other issue. Yeah, right, right. Concerned about what's going to happen with the currency. Uh, rightly so, if you look at all the defaults and everything, and the ghost cities and all the things they did, to basically top it up by you know, spending. So I think that flight out of China, that money is coming in just trying to find a spot. The, the issue, whenever you see institutions buying C-class properties, in my opinion, it's the beginning of the year. <laughs> you know? That's a great quote. That's a yeah. great quote. <laughs> Most institutions who never even, I personally don't own any, and we won't buy any because I just don't want any. Yeah. I was battling it out with the institutions in 2008, 9, 10, 11 on the class A's and the B's. And those have gone up so much now they're, you know, and for me it's a a natural progression of things. You know, people are moving to C's because C's are the best price, you know, deal, but they're not necessarily the best deal. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned is that you really only did one deal in the last 12 months. Tell me a little bit more about how you're sort of weathering the storm. Obviously, you've got 10,000 units, so you're not in a big hurry, but I am on your investor list and you know I've seen some things, and not recently, but the things that I have seen, they've been a little bit different. I think I saw a new construction. I think I saw, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there was also some commercial and even some space, yeah, yeah, self-storage space. So what do you think? I mean, are these things that you think still have legs? What are, What's your position on some of these things? Yeah, so good question. So we felt like multifamily started peaking for us about two years ago. And, you know, we did find one deal that was a pure value add, which means that, you know, we bought it and it had about $100 per month lift in the rent. You know, once renovated. So that was a larger property, 450 units. But I think that we've been looking for other alternative asset classes, just like everybody else. And so I've branched out to people that I know well 
you know, in the commercial space and the self storage space. One, just to learn more about it so that our company, you know, can keep momentum going through what I would consider to be a very tough time to buy. Self storage is one of those areas that we like. I like self storage uh, primarily because it doesn't have any employees. You know? Yeah. I love my employees, don't get me wrong. We just got awarded the, you know, most admired company in Arizona and top 50 companies in Arizona. And so, you know, we have an incredible employee culture. We work a lot on that. But it's where I spend a lot of time, you know, because there's a lot of stuff on, on the trading side and on the promotion side and on the turnover side. And so we spend a lot of time, of course. So why I like self-storage is most of the time it's pretty automated. It doesn't take a lot of people to run it. Once you fill it up, a lot of people don't move out like that. Is there still yield in that market right now, you think? Yeah, it depends. Again, it looks like anything. You know, they've definitely gone up. You have to buy in the right spot. You have to find where, you know, where there's some growth and, and demand, of course, just like apartments. So the dynamics are a little bit different, but generally very similar to apartments, less people. and takes longer to lease them up. And once they're full, though, they're easier to keep full, in my opinion. And, and then I think that the other thing, though, is that you don't have a value add you go on apartments. You know, sure. it's a great place to house your money and keep it there like an annuity. But you're not going to have the big IRR, you know, the big cash on cash changes. You're not going to find very many turnarounds other than just by increasing occupancy. And then, of course, we dabble in the office, too. And, and that was just a Kind of a, there's a, I live in Scottsdale. Scottsdale Road is like the main road, obviously, in Scottsdale. And, and a friend of mine found a property right on Scottsdale Road, not far from our office. That we have the exact same issue that everyone else has, actually. And Ross and I are sitting on loads of cash yeah. from, from our refinances. And in addition to wanting to be able to provide deals to our investors, you know, we've held off because. We could raise capital. Last year, we raised almost $100 million. Yeah. But that would ruin a lot of relationships, I think, by them correct, you know, by them today. So, but Ross and I are sitting on a bunch of money ourselves as we refinance our projects and put some debt on and, and continue to run them. And so, we're looking for anywhere other than the bank to have money, you know, placed. So, that's why we've kind of branched out. I would rather actually stick to apartments, you know, because that's what I know the best. Sure. And I'm not the managing member of companies either. I'm, I'm an actual investor, just like a lot of our investors. But like everybody, I don't want to be sitting in the bank. You know? Yeah, I hear you. So going back to basics, right now, if you had some advice for people that are just starting out in apartment investing and or syndication, what would your advice be right now? Would it be sideline? <laughs> right. Well, there's a lot of opportunity out there. It's just not the space I'm looking. Yeah. So really, honestly, there, there, there still is. But there's a lot of opportunity in the under 100 unit properties, I think, in the right markets. 25, 50 unit properties. That's generally not a very sophisticated arena. And so you can find, I think, little opportunities in there. You know, we don't do any of that. But in the 200 unit and up space, which is us, it's too late, in my opinion. Right. We are doing ground up construction, but you know, I bought that land six, seven years ago, and construction costs are actually pretty reasonable. So what's happening is 
anything that we bought, like you just mentioned, the, the C-class stuff is at 70000 a door, more buildings, hundreds of brand yeah. new. Yeah. So you start to look at, you know, B's and C's and A's and where the rents are, all of a sudden it starts to make construction look pretty darn good. And so we're going to finish out a couple more. But again, we're holders though. We're not, we don't sell, we don't try to time the market and sell. So we're going to build right now with the numbers are great and then hold them long term. And we should do very, very well on construction. But other than that, I don't know that we're going to be doing a lot over the next two, three years unless I'm actually waiting. You know, the guys that, that I've known in this business, what we say when we get together for a beer is I can't wait for the next crash. Yeah. And on the syndication side, I think that people just need to be really careful that they don't ruin some of the relationships that they have now by you know, trying to put food on the table. Because it is hot. It's really hot. People are overpaying, in my opinion. I mean, I'm running the I have acquisition guys here in house, of course. We looked at 600 deals in the last 12 months. We wrote 52 offers and we ended up getting one. So I not only do I see all the numbers, we're underwriting them, and then we're seeing what they're being sold for. So it's pretty simple to see what the returns are based on 50 deals over the last 12 months. We've seen trade, and I can tell you that you know people are on real numbers. They're paying numbers. They're paying prices. You're looking at two, three, four percent cash on cash return. That's if oxygen is hot. That expenses are stable. I think the challenge that investors have right now, Ken, and tell me if you agree with this, is that I see a lot of deals across my desk, even as an investor, because I'm also passive, and a lot of the stuff I'm seeing is just too optimistic. And you know, you're seeing five-year performance with regression cap rates that are just you know too optimistic. I mean, five years, it's very unlikely we're going to be this compressed. And I'm also seeing, like you mentioned, when you look at the yearly increases in rents, people throwing in three, four, 5% at a time. And you know, it's hard, I think, as an investor. I mean, in your position, obviously, and to a certain degree in my position, I can see that happening. But I think a lot of investors have to be very careful in this environment. Honestly, you can make any deal work right now with whatever number you want to put on. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so I see those deals too. You know, I get a lot, you know, we have 800 accredited investors. So sure. We have a lot of our investors, but some really high profile ones actually send me the deals. They say, hey, you know, I want them to keep placing money. And if I, you know, if I can learn something too, I will. So I get a fair amount of those deals. And they're projecting occupancies a lot higher. They're projecting rents a lot higher. They're projecting rent growth a lot higher. They're projecting huge, huge expense saving. And I'm not saying all those things can't be achieved. Sure. But I'm just incredibly conservative. I think what happens a lot of times, people get caught in, they believe that next year is going to be better than the prior year. And I'm fairly cynical on next year, on the next 12 months. They part of business. And we're starting to see taxes go up, insurance utilities, and we're seeing flat rent growth in, in a lot of markets. And if you read anything on the multifamily side, you'll see that rents are flat in a lot of markets. And you can't underwrite 95, 94, 96% occupancy for the next five years. You have to be down, in my opinion, into the mid to high 80s and be more realistic on how they're going to run it. So that's how we do it. And then we like to overperform 
perform, underwrite conservatively, and then overperform for our investors. And I think, like I said earlier, sometimes these syndicators, they're stretching because, you know, they, for whatever reason, they, they built a lifestyle, they need to fund it. And I've seen those guys in every cycle, they'll go down just like everyone else has in the world. You know, we've been in business for 15 years and we've been through a couple cycles now. And, you know, we plan on being in business all the time. I'm not going to buy right now. We'll remember that they are. Right, right. Well, this has been great, Ken. So there's a couple things I want to mention. So KenMacroy.com, tell us a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. So, you know, I wrote uh, four books and with uh, Robert Kiyosaki. And, of course, those, we get lots and lots and lots of feedback from those books. And, and so, I, quite honestly, I just wasn't able to keep up with the emails and, the, and all great questions from people. And so we created a video series to be able to answer those questions. So we get... So I basically go into the studio and record some of the answers so then we put them up. And, and obviously the ones that are not too specific, the ones that are really general and really good, we put up on the website. It's, it's kenmacroy.com and we have several hundred videos up online and you can go up and choose from a menu and everything from financing to property management to entrepreneurship to you know real estate investing and syndication, all that stuff. And so we just keep adding videos. And that way it's easier. It's a nicer portal people that can all go to one spot. One thing I'd like to point out to listeners out there is whatever you do, don't be too worried when you Google Ken McElroy. <laughs> well, apparently there's some serial killer named Ken McElroy. Right? I saw that. Yeah, I know. I some guy, I guess, killed like 20 years ago or something. Right, exactly. But it makes up like the first page of Google. So make sure to put in Rich Dad or you know Ken McElroy Real Estate or something like that in order to find or just go to KenMcElroy.com. The other thing I wanted to just make sure that people knew because Ken, this group that I have here, listeners, a lot of accredited investors out there, I'm sure they'd love to get on your list. How can they do that? Yeah, the easiest way is go to our www.mccompanies.com. So it's M-C-C-O-M-P-A-N-I-E-S.com. Then they'll see there's just an investor subscription form there and a questionnaire that we ask to have. And then uh, that email basically goes right to me. Fantastic. Ken McElroy, thank you very much for being on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Happy to do it. Good luck to you. See you next week. Yeah, see you next week. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ken McElroy. I certainly did. By the way, I really do encourage you to read his books if you want to understand the language of real estate better. And if you want to do that, go to my resources section at wealthformula.com and you'll see a link. There's the first book, which is the ABCs of real estate. Grab that and I'm sure the other one will pop up too on Amazon. And even if you're just purely a passive investor, say you're an investor club, and you're just basically looking for deals to invest in passively, it's still good for you to know what we're talking about, right? I mean, you really got to learn the language. That's what this is all about, right? And that's how I learned. Obviously, there was some more education along the way and influences. And of course, as we sort of talked about at the very beginning of the show, real life experiences. I mean, that's what this is all culminated to. But Ken's books would be a great place for anyone to start who's really starting to think about investing in real estate in general. In fact, let's make that our action step for the week. For those of you who don't know that much about real estate investing, get Ken's, at least his first book, The ABCs of Real Estate, 
and read it. Once you read it, it's time to take action. So until next time, this is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.